now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And it is a great nation despite the fact that uh, our president and his party uh, seem to have linked themselves onto a great mistake. It's not just a mistake. It may also be illegal, unconstitutional. I'm talking about uh, President Biden's plan to forgive $10,000 or $20,000, depending on who you are, uh, in terms of student loan debt. Uh, what right does he have to do that, according to our laws? Uh, not much, says Andy McCarthy, who is a best-selling author, contributing editor at National Review, a uh, Fox News contributor, and most importantly, a former chief assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, Andy, you have written that you believe that the challenges that have been put forward uh, by some uh, conservative think tanks and by six attorneys general of uh, different states, challenges to the student loan scheme of President Biden, those challenges could actually prevail, that it is dubious that President Biden has the right to spend this $420 billion of the people's money. Yeah, Michael, I think this is one of the more peculiar litigations that we'll see in that it's clear what the bottom line answer is, which is that Biden does not have the constitutional authority to do what he's done. But because this is being resolved in the courts, um, obviously, Congress is at a standstill. They're not going to, even though they should not, uh, they should defend the prerogatives of Congress and not let him do this. But um, you know, the pol the politics of it is they won't. Um, so the challenge in court always is standing. That's a hurdle you have to get over. You have to be able to show that you have uh, an individualized injury. The fact that something is bad policy, or even just that it's against the law is not enough to get in the door uh, for a civil lawsuit. You actually have to show that you have a unique concrete injury that puts you in a different category than the rest of us. And that's ordinarily a good thing. I think, you know, the idea behind standing is that we don't want the courts uh, to be our super legislature uh, that, that uh, resolves the major issues in American life. We want them there to uh, resolve cases where people have uh, individual harms. Uh, but here, obviously, this is such an atrocious policy that we're hoping that uh, that it gets a hearing, and I think it will. And uh, the best uh, plea for standing, it's not enough to simply say this is unfair that uh, people who've already paid off their college loans are uh, basically being cheated on something like this because they felt we are going to have an obligation to do this. And now here there are literally millions of people who aren't going to have to or going to be able to forget about at least $10,000 of their obligation. That's not standing enough. No, it, the fact that something is just bad policy and that it's been illegally implemented by the executive branch without any authority from Congress is not enough for an individual uh, person or entity to get in the door. But the standing requirements, Michael, are not insuperable. And the, uh, the lawsuit that was brought by the Pacific Legal Foundation on behalf of some uh, individual 
uh, uh, people, uh, they probably will get in the door, although I worry that um, Biden can probably tweak the executive guidance to to try to give them a, a pass. They're, it, it's a little bit of a complicated situation, but basically they are in a category of people who, because uh, they they did public service, their loans would have been forgiven anyway, but they are in states that if you get complete loan forgiveness outside of that program, there's a tax penalty for it. So they can show an individual tax penalty. And the suit that was filed by the, uh, by the states um, probably has uh, a, an even uh, clearer shot at being heard by the courts because those states actually service loans uh, and make uh, income on uh, and get revenue from that. So the fact that uh, that those loans disappear is actually uh, they'll be able to show some injury. And again, it doesn't have to be monumental injury, but there has to be something concrete that you can say it's unique to you. A CNBC, which nobody would say is part of the conservative team or the GOP team, uh, they just uh, an hour ago, they uh, covered that uh, GOP challenges to Biden's student loan forgiveness plan put debt relief in jeopardy. And then millions of Americans who've been celebrating news of student loan forgiveness are now stuck in limbo as legal challenges to the plan mount. So these legal challenges could slow this process at the very least, no? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a regrettable pattern that we've seen really since, uh, I think, Barack Obama uh, brayed that he was, uh, once the Republicans took over control of Congress, he basically said, you know, look, I have a pen and I have a phone. And really, uh, in, in a very audacious way, uh, essentially said that he was going to run the country by executive power. And the first manifestation of that was, of course, in the immigration area where he had, I, I think it was over a dozen times, uh, said that he didn't have authority to act on his own, that he needed, you know, congressional green light. Uh, and then when it was clear that politically he couldn't get that, he said, well, uh, who cares? I'm going to just go ahead and do it myself. This is on the and ever since program, then, yeah. Yes, exactly right. And and ever since then, uh, you know, what we basically have is presidents trying to make policy based on interpretations of um, administrative statutes. And as soon as they announce a policy, what happens is people tootle into court uh, and say it violates the Administrative Procedures Act or it violates the Constitution. Um, here, I think it really does clearly violate the Constitution. So I would hope um, in in any uh, situation where you had something this egregious that uh, that people would agree that it should be undone, but I just think it's a it's an unfortunate uh, fact of the way we're now governed that you know I think the framers expected that Congress was going to protect its constitutional prerogatives regardless of party, and what the progressive movement does is it basically gravitates to whatever part of government can advance uh, progressive policies. And when they control the executive branch, they encourage the president to engage in phone and pen governance. So not the way it's supposed to be run, but uh, it's what we're stuck with at the moment. 
Andy, if we could uh, continue the conversation about something else that has been happening today, uh, which is the beginning of the seditious conspiracy trial for people from Oath Keepers who have a very right. novel defense, which I'm sure you're, you're on, on track with. Are, aren't they claiming that they were justified in taking the steps toward what they themselves called civil war? Uh, they, they claim they're justified in doing that because President Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act. Now, what exactly does all of this mean and what does it have to do with the idea that the leaders of Oath Keepers are on trials beginning today uh, regarding their participation in January 6th? We will get a perspective on that and a perspective you can trust because it's balanced, it's clear, it's extremely well informed from Andrew McCarthy of National Review and of Fox News uh, coming right back on uh, the Michael Medved show. Uh, Andy, we, we will be back and try to understand uh, what the Insurrection Act would have meant had it been invoked and maybe why it wasn't invoked, which, thank God. Uh, we will be right back on The Medved Show. You're listening to The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, one of the things that uh, people love to do with sports is to sort of handicap which team is most likely to win. And uh, that would have been an interesting process concerning the Detroit Seattle game that uh, happened yesterday. And by the way, go Mariners. The Mariners are going to be in the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. Uh, anyway, the we're speaking to Andrew McCarthy, not about sports, though I know he cares about that too, but uh, about what's going on in a trial right now where there are four leaders and members of Oath Keepers, which is a militia-like group. Uh, who, the Oath Keepers have been accused of seditious conspiracy, which is a very serious charge that would bring with it significant jail terms. And, uh, uh, Andy, which side uh, do you like, based upon the opening statement so far by the prosecutors and the defense, uh, which side do you like in, in terms of this case so far, uh, the prosecution or the defense of the Oath Keepers? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm uh, against my better judgment, uh, I'm rooting for the United States. Um, and I say against my against my better judgment because I happen to uh, when I work for the United States, uh, I, I happen to have tried the last big seditious conspiracy case that the Justice Department prevailed in. Wow! And my my uh, which was against the blind shake and uh, the jihadists back in uh, we had a little ten month trial in 1995, and um, I, I really I'm. I really wish the government had not brought a seditious conspiracy case here because uh, what what the 
crime requires is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that people conspired to levy war against the United States or to oppose the authority of the government by force. And in my case, it was kind of the textbook case, Michael, for this, because we had uh, jihadists in the United States who made no bones about the fact that they were at war with America. And when they bombed the World Trade Center and tried to simultaneously bomb other targets in, in New York, they were projecting force on the level of something that was a lot bigger, that obviously, than a crime wave. So that was a pretty clear case, even though it's a very rarely invoked statute. Here you have the complication where the defendants can actually plausibly say that they were acting, they thought, at the behest of the head of the government, the head of the executive branch of the government, which I think makes it very complicated to try to show I mean, in these people's heart of hearts, our jihadists wanted to destroy the United States and destroy our system. The people on trial here are very misguided. I think they deserve to go to jail um, and be convicted of a number of other things. But I think in their heart of hearts, they believe they were trying to save the United States because they believed the nonsense the president was saying. And I'm not, I don't really think that's a good uh, – tapestry against which to bring a seditious conspiracy case. What, what about as a, uh, uh, an item of defense? What, what would be the relevance? President Trump never invoked the Insurrection Act. I don't think he ever really talked about invoking the Insurrection Act publicly. Had he invoked the Insurrection Act, would that have given uh, the right to the Oath Keepers to... Uh, arm themselves and to organize opposition to the government? It would not have because the Insurrection Act can only be invoked to suppress, uh, to suppress rebellion or domestic violence, or it, it allows uh, for the president to bring in military force, including militias, when law enforcement has broken down. That's not a, these people cause law enforcement to break down. Uh, they weren't reacting to uh, law enforcement being broken down. But I think, Michael, the reason that they're talking about the Insurrection Act is that the government has a lot of uh, alarming uh, text evidence and other evidence of communications where it was clear that these guys regarded themselves as a militia. So since that evidence is going to come before the jury, I think they probably figure they have to have a story for – you know, why as a militia it would have been appropriate for them to respond uh, to the theft of the election. And, you know, there was a lot of talk on these uh, in these texts about hoping that that Trump would call them out as a militia. But I don't see that there was any basis to invoke the Insurrection Act. I think you could argue that he could have invoked the Insurrection Act during, for example, when they were burning the cities after George Floyd, and it was clear that in some places ordinary law enforcement had broken down. There was an argument, as even Senator Cotton said at the time, for bringing the military in to restore order because ordinary law enforcement's not equipped to restore order once order has been lost. Um, but I don't see how that would have applied to the Capitol situation because it was the rioting that was caused by the militias. They wouldn't have been called out to react to rioting. Are you hopeful that uh, we will be able to put 
an end to the consequences and the and the the judgments regarding January sixth and regarding that very very dark day that we'll be able to move beyond that at some time before President Biden leaves office. No. You no, think this is? You think, think we got uh, at least two more years of this? Yeah, and I hate to say this, but I think it's because um, President Trump. I think the Democrats want to run against President Trump. They sure do. And I think Trump has, and and I think Trump has a powerful um, motive to run because his best defense against the mounting investigations of him, which include January sixth. Is that uh, you know he wants to create a situation that the Democratic administration is using its law enforcement authorities to go after its uh, you know Biden's chief rival for the White House. I think if he weren't running, they'd have much less in the way of qualms about indicting him. Um, he's only useful to them while he's a candidate because I think they think that he can win the nomination, but he can't win the general election. So. As much as they're building, they're trying to build prosecutable cases against him, um, I think they also don't want to take him off the field. Um, and I think he realizes if they, if he takes himself out of contention, then the argument for not prosecuting him is diminished, uh, if that makes sense. So uh, I, I just think we're in for it for another couple of years. <laughs> which is not a cheerful proposition, but uh, probably a, a very accurate and balanced perspective. As usual from Andrew McCarthy, he uh, is a contributing editor at National Review. Uh, we've published some of his most recent pieces. We've posted them up at our website at michaelmedved.com. We will be right back with an explosion in two different locations far away from each other, of tire slashing. More than 100 tires slashed in Alameda. We'll get to that and more coming up. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, there are two different reports from uh, two very liberal parts of the country, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and Portland, Oregon. And this is something relatively new. And it's very strange that this happened in two different locales, uh, locales that are hundreds of miles away from each other, that, uh, well, first, the NBC Bay Area report from something devastating that happened in Alameda, California. Alameda, for people who don't know, Alameda County is uh, the county east of San Francisco, the East Bay that includes Berkeley and Oakland. Alameda is considered a more moderate part of the county, more um a little bit more blue collar, but uh, here is the report for what happened in Alameda. It was pretty shocking. Uh, from clip ten. 
At first glance, it might look like this tire ran out of air, but when dozens of people in this Alameda complex awoke Saturday to the same thing, they realized it wasn't a coincidence. Two of my tires were slashed and all the other tires that live in my apartment building were too. Alameda police say overnight someone slashed the tires of at least 160 cars along the west side of the city. They've arrested a suspect described as a 25-year-old Alameda resident. But the damage has already been done. I did call AAA for a tow, and the estimated time of arrival was, I think, three, three and a half hours. Yeah. Tow trucks were in and out of parking lots all day. It took about, like, five hours to find a tire and get it fixed. Um, some people don't have their tires fixed yet. Debbie Dole managed to find new tires, but now she's out 700 bucks. It's ridiculous, you know, it's expensive. These residents are hoping this act of mass vandalism prompts their complexes to invest in surveillance cameras. And at this point, Alameda police say they don't have a motive for this crime. Okay, uh, if you think about this and you think about putting yourself in that situation... Wouldn't you want that suspect 160 cars, 160 cars slashing tires? Uh, should there be a very lengthy prison term? <laughs> Don't you think? And by the way, this is the weirdest thing. I'd read about this thing in Alameda. I was horrified. And then this morning I found out Portland, Oregon as well. This is a report from KGW8 in uh, Portland. Listen. Portland police first responded Saturday morning to a vehicle with slashed tires on Northeast 72nd Avenue, only to find the damage was widespread, reaching cars parked several blocks away on Northeast 77th. Later, they found 20 more vandalized vehicles in the neighborhood west of Roseway Heights Middle School. We're in a war that nobody told us about. These are critical times, hard to deal with. What's Portland? What is up with Portland? It's horrible. It's like, it's so senseless. This photo of the alleged suspect is now circulating on social media. What was in his mind? That's the thing I would like to know. What was in his mind? Could we have helped him? On some of these cars with the tires slashed were handwritten notes threatening neighbors if they called the city. This leaving some concerned and ultimately confused. Yeah, people are having these notes left on their car, and it sounds like, you know, haha, the cops aren't even going to do anything, even if you try to report it. I'm not too threatened about it. The city of Portland needs to grapple with these things in a kind of an intelligent way rather than reactionary. What does that mean? What does that mean? And, and what about the comment, gee, I, I wish we had known about this guy. Could we have helped him? Uh, there's something terribly wrong and weird here. And what's most fascinating is both these occurrences were on Friday night, Saturday. Was it some, some holiday, some observance, anything, uh, an anniversary of something? Why, why would there be two cities that are hundreds of miles apart from each other? What is it? Must be. And I think it's at least 200 miles from Portland, at more than 200 miles from uh, Alameda, California to Portland, Oregon. And what connects these these two incidents? Or is it just coincidence? Uh, and once they uh, they do establish uh, a suspect, and 
And when you're talking about that many tires, uh, at least 50 in, in Portland and 160 in Alameda, uh, is it one individual who slashes 160 tires on 160 different cars? And apparently most of the cars, they slashed at least two tires. So it's, uh, it's appalling. And obviously it contributes to this sense that many Americans have about crime getting out of control, not, not being able to enjoy simple sense of safety and security. Uh, there were uh, comments about that by, uh, by Senator John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana, uh, talking about crime in the upcoming elections. This is clip 15. Violent crime is surging in Louisiana. Woke leaders blame the police. I blame the criminals. A mom should not have to look over her shoulder when she's pumping gas. I voted against the early release of violent criminals and I opposed defunding the police. Look, if you hate cops just because they're cops, I'm John Kennedy and I approve this message. Okay, uh, that, and then there's a, a punchline that it, we didn't hear there. If you hate cops just because they're cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. Um, which uh, Senator Kennedy, uh, somebody who is noted for uh, his his humor, is this a, a legitimate uh, issue for the elections coming up? I mean, Democrats question that it is. Of course it's a legitimate issue. And does it matter if a local member of Congress uh, supports police or not? Yes, it does. And there are federal policies, of course, that uh, I think uh, very, very much with a new Republican House of Representatives are going to show a pro- law enforcement bias, and they should. Uh, in another part of the world, uh, talking about law and order, uh, Iran is blaming America and Israel for ongoing riots over the death of a woman who was arrested by their morality police for failing to wear a hijab correctly. By the way, there's a substantial Kurdish population in Iran and the woman who was killed was also Kurdish and this has also been uh, one of those things that the Kurdish community has been indignant about. Uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the aging and ailing uh, supreme leader, has said the violent protests were planned by Israel and the U.S. He said they are a plot to destabilize Iran as he tried to quell the unrest, the protests were sparked by the death of Masa Amini, a 22 years old, in police custody. Um, we will uh, talk uh, a little bit further about the, the ongoing debate about the Oath Keepers trial. Uh, there's also a challenge uh, to my suggestion that an obsession with election fraud is actually going to discourage people from participation in the upcoming elections. 
Isn't it clear that that is the case? We will get to that and to much more coming up on The Medved Show. You're a nice guy. Michael Medved. The trend, and it, it appears to be a trend, of uh, slash tires. There was a piece in the New York Post, and then this is back in July, but it's this year. And uh, it says in the New York Post, the eco-warriors who deflated the tires of dozens of SUVs in the Big Apple have struck in at least three other U.S. cities and threatened to expand massively across the country. Okay, uh, first of all, there are two differences here. The, uh, the story in the Post suggests that these were people who were deflating the tires, not necessarily slashing them. Obviously, if you've deflated a tire, it can be reinflated. If you slash a tire, it's not so easy. And secondly, the New York Post, that it was people aiming directly at SUVs. Now, I'm not saying that that's forgivable. Oh, it's just they're just hitting SUVs. No, you can't. It's still vandalism and it's still attack on your fellow citizens and still should um, land you, especially if you're hitting a lot of different cars of strangers, land you in jail for a long time. Really? because of the accumulated pain and loss that you're causing for innocent people. And uh, the idea that you somehow are helping uh, the environment, here's one of the, the questions about that. If you're causing people to have to throw away their old slash tires or thickness, it's all nauseating and, and horrible. And uh, speaking of nauseating and horrible, uh, Vice News uh, ran a piece uh, all about convicted sex offenders. And uh, one, of the, one of the statements in the Talmud that has always Jewish scripture has always informed my point of view is that people who are uh, kind when they ought to be cruel, will end up being uh, cruel uh, when they ought to be kind. It's You can't... And convicted sex offenders really are, are not, uh, it, it seems to me, tremendous candidates for kindness and forgiveness and understanding. Vice News ran a piece about convicted sex offenders and how they have to deal with the stigma and ostracism by society, including restrictive housing laws that prohibit them from living in many areas of the country. Okay, if you live in a given neighborhood, say it's a suburban neighborhood, and is it 
legit to say I don't want convicted sex offenders, maybe with multiple convictions, to live nearby or live near our elementary schools. But uh, here's uh, when this segment from Vice News uh, goes off the rails and sort of ends with uh, a little bit of a surprise to uh, the reaction of some of the subjects of the sympathy that they are featuring. Listen. How do you balance trying to start a new life and start fresh with the resentment that I imagine you feel for everything that's happened? I ain't got time for the resentment. Like, life got to include every element, every different scenario, and I accept none. Are you hopeful for your future? I'm definitely hopeful. I like the position I'm in. I ain't finna let stuff stop me. Not even this. Or DNA, or a person's opinion. Like, we all out here in this world, and we all gotta make it happen, and ain't nothing stopping me. So, like, I'm very hopeful and confident. After this interview, Ashif sent a picture of his penis to our producer. He later said through his lawyer that he sent it by mistake. I know nothing. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, how do you send it by mistake? <laughs> well, again, benefit of the doubt. Uh, there's, there's also somebody who has been making a lot of mistakes recently. And what's incredible to me, I, I, I've really begun to feel a lot of uh, pity, sympathy for Mehmet Oz. For um, I, By the way, I, I really do hope he pulls it out and he wins the Senate seat in Pennsylvania. Not because he's so great, but because John Fetterman is so sad and such a disgrace. Uh, for instance, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania who is the front runner right now in the Senate race in Pennsylvania, he's Democrat, of course, he, uh, he says he's happy to release first-degree murderers. What? Uh, this is what it sounds like. Clip seven. I'm happy that he's going to be going home to his family and that even if you're not moved by, again, the morality of having these folks go back home, despite serving sentences that were in excess to what the crime was, um, from a financial burden, that, that's no longer on the state and the taxpayers. Some question about the offenses you built? Uh, certainly, there's, there's, there can always be... Okay, uh, that's uh, John Fetterman, and then uh, he actually revealed the story behind his tattoos because Tucker Carlson had erroneously called them fake tattoos. But I'll tell you what's fake is what's fake is his ability to serve in the U.S. Senate considering uh, his public appearances, particularly after his stroke. Uh, this is um, uh, in light of some of his most recent head-scratching interviews, the Republican National Committee uh, reduce uh, released a, a collage of his recent public appearances. This is clip 13. The Eagles are so much better than the Eagles. And make sure you take advantage of this amazing opportunity to the only thing you have stand to lose is your record. What is wrong with demanding for an easy 
safe kind of their income, a path to a safe place for them to win. And I can champion the union way of life in Jersey, in, excuse me, in D.C. If you come out and step with us, we will be able to stand with you in D.C. Uh, the, uh, the debate, uh, and he has agreed to a debate with Dr. Oz. And uh, uh, look, I, I think that Dr. Oz uh, made a mistake when he referred to what most people would call a vegetable tray as crudités. Uh, crudités, I, I can tell you, has not really been in, in our vocabulary or in my wife's vocabulary, anyone's vocabulary. But, but really, uh, imagine how Dr. Oz would feel or basically our national Republicans, this entire control of the U.S. Senate could come down to this particular Senate race between Mehmet Oz and uh, John Fetterman. Uh, Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor and U.S. Senate candidate John Fetterman is opening up about the personal meaning behind his tattoos following Fox News, Tucker Carlson's claims that the ink is nothing more than a costume. In an op-ed published by NBC News on Sunday, the 53-year-old Fetterman writes that each of the nine tattoos on his right forearm marks a day on which someone died violently while I was mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania. The first one that I tattooed on my arm is 0-1-16-0-6, that's the date on which Christopher Williams was shot dead while delivering pizzas, Fetterman writes. Uh, Fetterman goes on to detail the other dates memorialized by his tattoos, writing that they all serve as reminders of the people we have lost and that I am fighting for. Uh, this came in an email from Keith. And Keith uh, asks me, he says, so you think if people weren't thinking about election fraud that they would be concerned and take action on the national debt? What in the world would ever leave you to believe that? I do think people are more likely to vote if they are not obsessed with election fraud. Because if they're obsessed with election fraud and people believe the elections are not fair, it's one of the things that keeps them home instead of voting, which is something we want all conservatives to do for the national debt and other reasons as well to benefit and protect this greatest nation on God's green earth. 